Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thank you, Wes. Uh, great to see all of you here this morning. Good morning. Great to see you. Good morning. It's good to be here with you. Um, of course, I hope you had a great week. We've had a, another tough week uh, with what's going on in Ukraine this past week as attacks have intensified, and in particular, there's been some attacks targeted at civilians and uh, housing, housing buildings and those kinds of things. And so to see the news that's coming out of there consistently day after day has been disheartening, discouraging, a little bit challenging and worrisome, I think, for a lot of us as we've been praying through this and looking at this. And, you know, uh, well, one of the things that, that I said last week, I still believe it's true today, is that, you know, uh, it is timely for what we're going through uh, this morning as we uh, continue our series on the book of Revelation. Of course, anytime we're experiencing... Uh, chaos and confusion and uh, in, in, in the way that we are, uh, asking questions about what's going on and what exactly is this going to spill over into and, and what's the end of this and, and all those kinds of things. It's important for us to go to God's Word at any point in, in, in those situations and at all points to understand a little bit about what God has to tell us about uh, what He's doing in this world and where He's bringing all things to an end. And I think especially the book of Revelation is one of those places um, I know that uh, as we've gone through this series, one of the things that we have picked up on over and over again, it's one of the main themes of the book of Revelation, is what God is doing about the evil in the world. And where God is bringing it, not only where he's, what he's going to do, but also what he is doing right now. What he is doing behind the scenes and where he is directing human history. Because as people all over the world, especially those in Ukraine right now, are worried and, and weeping over loss and maybe even questioning what might be next, there's been natural questions about what all of this means, right? Is this just a madman wanting more power and doing it under the cover of a false narrative that he's telling the world so that he can expand his empire and his influence? Or is there something more to this? Is there something more about the cosmic implications about what we're seeing and the implications of evil in the world? And maybe you've seen some of the several voices that have come out and made declarations that Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist, um, now, I think it's important to talk about those things and these ideas and these suggestions as we're going through the book of Revelation because, as we talked about a few weeks ago, um, w there, are, there are references not directly to the Antichrist, but what I believe is the Antichrist reference, which is the beast, the image of the beast that we see there. And I think something that helps us, you know, as we go through this and answer those kinds of questions is that it balances out our understandings and interpretations so we can see exactly what God is doing and what He is actually communicating to us through his word. In other words, you may have known if you were here a few weeks ago, right? Spoiler alert. The reality is that I don't believe that there is a reference to the Antichrist as one person or one figure in history. Instead, I believe that that Antichrist representation, which is represented by the beast, represents a spirit of Antichrist and represents activity and the way of the Antichrist in the world, which of course can be represented by different kings and kingdoms throughout history. But balancing this out, I would also say that the question about this question about whether Putin is the Antichrist provides us with a balanced kind of interpretation in saying this way. I, I think on the one hand, we should certainly recognize that what P Putin is doing in, in, in uh, invading a weaker nation under false pretenses and attacking and killing citizens and bombing residential buildings is a picture of Antichrist activity and is a picture of the Antichrist way, using lies and propaganda and the abuse of power to destroy peace and to bring death and to rip apart communities is an antichrist way. It is certainly not the way of Jesus, right? It is not the way that we see in the kingdom a way of peace and reconciliation and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Not only that, but of course we've seen the beasts of Revelation specifically characterized as those who deceive, as those who oppose the will of God in the world, as those who by violence destroy uh, the peace of the world and bring even death in their wake. And things like abuse of power, violence, greed, and deception are characteristic of what they do. So, as we have discussed previously when it came to this reference, that this is, uh, this is likely just the influence that we've seen throughout kings and kingdoms throughout history, and that we see playing out again and again. And of course, those names that might come to our minds are typical. Names like Hitler and Stalin and Mao, Idi Amin, and John's time and John's day, in the Roman Empire, he might have thought of guys like Nero and Domitian as representations of the Antichrist way, who ruled by violence and oppression, and in particular, the persecution of God's people. So, we should expect, in other words, that Antichrists will come, and they'll go, and they'll breathe threats, and, still and uh, steal, and kill, and destroy peace. 
But what we see in Revelation triumphantly, and what we're going to see today in Revelation 18 as we're reminded again, is that those, the Antichrist way, the Antichrist spirit does not win in the end. That what wins, that what wins in the end and who, really who wins in the end is Jesus. That his victory is present and that his victory has already overcome sin and evil for eternity. And that everything that we see in this world that represents the brokenness of creation, sin, and evil will be defeated. And I know that in a lot of ways um, that doesn't necessarily make the devastation of the Ukraine war any earlier or any easier to come to terms with. But because Jesus has won and because he has overcome evil and sin and death and dragon and his beast, we have assurance that justice will come and that everything that is antichrist will be removed from creation for eternity and it will not have the final say. And of course, the calling of the central focus of the book of Revelation is that we do focus on the one who has overcome and that is Jesus. And so as we get into Revelation 18 this morning, we're going to see that, that we get another reminder of just what Jesus has overcome as we continue in this chapter. You know, we only have four chapters left in the book of Revelation. Um, We're almost done. We're almost finished. I bet there were some of you who didn't think we'd even get to this point, right? A few of you. You you want to admit? I know Wes didn't believe that we'd get to this point. Uh, I got to admit, there were times where I I thought maybe we might not make it to this point either. But but I'm glad that we are. Seriously, as we get to the end of this book, I'm just getting more and more excited about, of course, coming to the end of it. Not because we get to finish it, but because uh, it's become really one, I could say, one of my favorite books of the Bible, just in going through it over these past several months that we've gone through. And this is part of it. We get to this last part here, and we really get the payoff. We started in Revelation 17, started this last section of this book, which is not just the final judgment. There are five chapters that are focused on the final judgment of God. We see this, but it's also focused more directly on the victory of Jesus. Why does it matter that Jesus won the victory over sin, evil, and death? And what does that look like? How does the victory of Jesus take root in this world, not only now, but for eternity? And how do we live from the victory of Jesus in terms of the hope that we have? I mean, that's what these last five chapters are all about. This is the section that we're in. This is kind of the, the you know, it's the stretch run as we get to the end of this, but it's also the most hopeful part of this book as it finishes up as well. So we're going to be looking at chapter 18 this morning, uh, celebrating the victory of Jesus in clear images and terms here in this chapter. And this chapter actually narrates and then celebrates the fact that Babylon is fallen. Now, if you weren't here with us last week, you may, be, you may not be familiar with who Babylon is and what that reference to Babylon is all about. We were introduced in John's vision to Babylon last week from Revelation 17 as this vision of a prostitute who was, on the one hand, very alluring with her apparent beauty and opulence, wearing expensive clothes and clothed in jewelry and expensive gold and those kinds of things. But then on the other hand, as John looked a little closer, he saw that she was also very dangerous as someone who was drunk on the blood of Christian martyrs, for example, with Babylon written across her forehead. And if that weren't threatening enough, she was also pictured as riding on the back of the beast or the Antichrist in the vision. And however, as the vision showed us and as the angel also explained, Babylon and the beast will only rule for a short time or will only be present for a short time, as that, as that passage said, only for an hour, as John explained, which literally brings us to today's chapter. In today's chapter, we're going to see that the hour of Babylon's reign and the hour of Babylon's presence in the world has come to an end. And what we see here is that Babylon is fallen and then also what results from Babylon being fallen. And one thing I want to call to our attention before we begin reading in this really kind of amazing, celebratory, but also really long chapter is this. I want to make you aware of this in particular. Something happens as we read through this that isn't as evident in our English translations as it is in the original language, which was Greek, that this was originally written in. And um, I, I think it's important to point out that the tense that this is written in is what is known as the prophetic perfect. And I love the prophetic perfect. I don't know if, you, if you've heard this term before, but the prophetic perf- uh, perfect shows up many times in Scripture, to explain something that is going to happen as a future event, but it describes it as a past event, as something that has has basically already happened, right? And so what what it's essentially saying is that what God is promising to do, and, and talking about future events that to us in history haven't happened yet, are as good as done. And so when he explains it, he explains it in the past, or he uses, and it's typically used through the through 
prophets speaking to us, which is why it's called the prophetic perfect. It's talking about future events that still haven't happened, but that are as completed as done, as if they're as good as done, because that's how sure the promises of God are. That's how sure our hope is in the end. And they typically encapsulate passages like this that give us hope in the celebration and the application of Jesus' victory. And I think that's important for us to think about, because think about what that means in a world that we live in where Babylon and the beast seem to be winning, where tyrants can still go wherever they want and kill and destroy and steal and wherever they want, sometimes at will, and oftentimes get away with it with little to no resistance, where people in power can persecute God's people to the point of death without a view of justice anywhere in that, in that scenario. To read words about the downfall and the judgment of Babylon and the beast reminds us of the reality of God's word and what he is actually doing. Right? We are tempted to think and to look into our world and to say that that is reality and there's a certain sense to where that's true. But what we're told here is that there is actually a greater reality, something that is more real, if you will, than the reality that we even see transpiring around us. And it is what God is doing to bring it all to an end. And, and so this whole passage here, even though it may be difficult to pick up on, is actually put into the prophetic per- perfect tense to communicate that to us. And so one, one, one uh, phrase that pops up over and over again that's kind of the guiding phrase in all this is Babylon is fallen. And that I think is one that, that English picks up on. It doesn't say Babylon will fall. It says Babylon is fallen, which communicates both the nature of Babylon, but also the state of Babylon, that it is already as good as fallen. It's like saying Bob, Babylon has fallen, even though, of course, Babylon hasn't fallen in history yet. Okay, So what we're looking at is Revelation chapter 18 with that in mind. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 18 or your Uh, phones or devices, there's also going to be scripture up on the screen so you can follow along with us as well. But Revelation 18, I'll warn you ahead of time, it's a long chapter so stay with us in this. There's a lot of kind of zigzagging back and forth, a lot of imagery as we've gotten used to in the book of Revelation, Um, but we'll talk about it after we read it. It says, Revelation 18 verse 1, it says this, after this I saw an angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, and lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, You great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in an hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, and all the scented wood, and all the the articles of ivory, all the kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul has longed has gone from you, and all the delicacies in your splendors are lost with you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares, who gained wealth from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple scarlet adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste, and all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade is on the sea, 
stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all the ships at sea grew rich rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given you judgment. God has given judgment for you against her. And then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on the earth. All right. You all still with me? <laughs> that, was a long, that was a long chapter, I know. But uh, we're going to get to all this in a minute and how it all ties together. But Let's say this from the outset. If it wasn't obvious before, I think it's plainly obvious from this passage that Babylon, at a basic general level, represents the idolatry really of wealth and power in the world and how it will be judged. Verse 3 refers directly to this relationship as the kings and the merchants of the earth have committed immorality with her and have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Along with that is this kind of constant refrain of the temporary nature of wealth and power that it only exists for an hour in this world and then it's judged and removed and in a single hour it's laid waste. Uh, We mentioned last week that an hour in the ancient world was considered to be the smallest amount of time. So in a modern translation this might say, or modern understanding this might say, the wealth and power of Babylon lasts for a moment and then it's gone the very next moment. Along with kind of this momentary, temporary nature of worldly wealth and power, the ultimate result of the destiny of, of a destiny built solely on worldly wealth and power is also shown here, that it'll all be judged and removed and thrown into the sea from which it came, never to be seen from and heard from again. And then the vision closes out with the mighty kings and the rich merchants who had so relied on the luxurious wealth that Babylon had provided to them, uh, crying and weeping over the loss of the influence of that city. Right? realizing that everything that they had trusted in was now literally up in flames and up in smoke. So really, uh, the way that this chapter is written, of course, I think this is actually verse count wise, maybe one of the longest chapters, if not the longest chapter in the, chapter in the book of Revelation. And there's a lot going on here. But essentially, there is one message that really weaves its way all the way through uh, this chapter. We're going to expound on that a little bit more. Uh, Despite, and it's essentially this, despite the prostitute's obvious connection to wealth and money, right, Babylon and the prostitute, the problem here is not necessarily money that's being addressed or even wealth per se that's being addressed, right? In other words, it's not saying that to be a merchant or to sell or to participate in businesses that sell or to have money or even to have wealth is necessarily a bad thing. What it's saying, the point of all this, is that idolatry itself is bad. That money and wealth can often be idols, along with, of course, political power, because the two often go hand in hand in our world. And God, and God knows that both of those things have a way of leading us into lots of idolatry like few other things can. And while Satan realizes that as well, he knows that wealth and power are intoxicating. At the same time, this is not necessarily just a, uh, just a condemnation on wealth or money itself. Instead, what God is doing, and there's a big call right here in the middle of verse 4, the one thing that we're told to do is to come out of Babylon. Come out of her, my people, because that is being judged. So don't be associated, don't be connected with the idolatry that often surrounds these kinds of things. Last week I shared the well-known quote from John Calvin about idolatry, that our hearts are like idol factories, And what that means is that, of course, we have a tendency to create idols out of almost everything. The emphasis here is wealth and power, but in many cases, idolatry can come from many other things. Things like social media or work, or even our good deeds can lead us into idolatry. Really, the list is endless, but it's ultimately about the heart, and that's what's being talked about here. 
So the message for us is that although money and wealth and even power and authority in this world are not bad in and of of themselves, what will destroy our souls is the issue of idolatry that is often attached to these things in our world. And what this shows us is that idolatry can be anything. It's about how we identify it and how it forms our hearts. So there are three ways I think we see that idolatry is identified. If we're asking what exactly does it look like, I think there are three ways specifically that it's called out here. Number one, idolatry is identified as depending on something other than God to be God. There's a phrase that happens throughout this, Babylon the Great or the Great City. You see it happen and refrain over and over again throughout this chapter. Uh, I think it happens somewhere between five and seven times, if I'm not mistaken. Um, What's interesting is that you see the merchants typically and the ones who are kind of the ship directors or the seafarers are the ones who are calling out Babylon the Great. And they're crying and weeping over this great city that has been destroyed. Now the word or the phrase Babylon the Great, the fact that great is tied to Babylon is really telling because most other places in the Bible, in fact all the places that I know of, when something like this is used, especially in reference to being great, it is always used in reference to God. And so when it's used and substituted, the word great being used in reference to Babylon, it's an obvious representation of the idolatry that's taking place here. Now what's expressed here and what's seen here is that those who are depending on the power and wealth of Babylon, those who are crying in the end and saying this great city had shown that they had replaced God, the great God, the only one who has deserved to be called great, with things of this world. In particular, the wealth that they had attained from living the way that they did. Secondly, another way that idolatry is identified is in giving devotion to someone or to something other than God. You see in verse nine it says, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. And we saw this phrasing last week, even in the image of Babylon as a prostitute, that this is not necessary, this is not directly referring to the act of sexual immorality. What it's referring to is spiritual sexual immorality. It's talking about joining ourselves in a way that is kind of like oneness with idolatry and oneness with Babylon and the beast, if you will. There's spiritual immorality, spiritual connection, spiritual oneness, uh, you know, at the risk of being too graphic, spiritual intercourse, if you will, going on with Babylon, with the harlot. So that, and that represents giving devotion towards something other than God. And then third, another way that idolatry is identified here is that idolatry produces fruit that opposes God's character in the world, that doesn't look like God in the world. Verse 5, it says that by her idolatry and the way that she leads people into idolatry, Babylon and her sins, the sins of Babylon are heaped as high as the heavens. Idolatry typically when it takes place in our lives doesn't just remain spiritual, it always expresses itself in some way. It always expresses itself in some action, it always bears fruit. Just like a good heart produces good fruit, a heart that is influenced by idolatry produces idolatrous fruit. So, Each of these are three indicators that are obvious, I think, in this chapter. There may be more. But the question becomes, what do we do with all of this, right? The aspect, the the reality that idolatry exists, when God says to us, come out of Babylon, my people, so that you're not judged in that same way, so that you don't, uh, so you don't under, or, or incur her judgment, what exactly does that look like for us to come out of Babylon? Well, I think it helps us to understand that behind this particular chapter are several references to the Old Testament. We see this a lot in the book of Revelation, but in this chapter in particular, there are a lot of references to three places in particular in the Old Testament. Uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. Now, you may be familiar with those as Old Testament prophets that are kind of the major prophets, but other other than the fact that they are major prophets, they also have some other things in common. Each one of those messages in each one of those books are united really by three main themes. And you see them show up in Ezekiel's ministry, in Jeremiah's ministry, and in Isaiah's ministry. It's a three-part message. The first message is that the prophets were sent to uh, confront Israel on her idolatry. To explain this is the way that you have given your heart to other gods, to other kings, to other nations. This is the way that you've been unfaithful to God spiritually and in some ways uh, practically with their engagement with other kingdoms. Secondly, they were to pronounce judgment. That judgment and discipline is coming as a result of this. If you don't turn back on your idolatry, this is what will happen to you. And then third, the third part of the message in all of those Old Testament prophets was this message of hope. That God, in spite of the way that you have turned away, in spite of the way that you have 
become idolatrous in spite of the way that you may not pay attention to his warnings, God will bring mercy and grace and reconciliation to himself in the, in the end. There will be hope for Israel. There will be hope for God's people. So even central in this phrase, right, from this chapter, that phrase, Babylon is fallen, is actually a direct quote from Isaiah. And the context of that is Babylon is fallen and all of her images and idols have been crushed. That's what it says in Isaiah. As a way of both explaining kind of the literal geopolitical Babylon that would fall eventually in history, and we know that it did fall, the kingdom of Babylon, but also as we pick it up in Revelation in this chapter and in the chapter before, what we see is that there's a greater realization and understanding of that statement as well, that eventually God will crush the worldwide system of Babylon, if you will, or the worldwide influence of Babylon along with all of her idols and influence. And so, for example, uh, and, we see, and we see all of these aspects of the evidence of idolatry. When you draw back into Israel's history, you see this play out. For example, when God says to Israel, I'll be your king, and I'm meant to be your king, and then the people, the Israelites, look around and they say, well, all the other nations around us, they have human kings. And God, we understand you want to be our king, but we can't see you, and we want to be like the other nations who have human kings, so we want you to give us a human king as well. That was idolatry. When they said things like, uh, when God said to the Israel, I will protect you. And so you don't need to run to other nations for military protection. Israel then ran to other nations. They saw the threat that might be coming and they thought, you know what? We may not be secure just by God protecting us, so we need to go make treaties with other nations around us. Of course, at a cost that came to them, that was idolatry. When God said to them, I will provide for you, and yet Israel entered into economic arrangements with all the nations around them, that became idolatry. And here's the biggest thing, is that not only did they make these partnerships with these nations, but it, the thing that, that God warned them about actually happened is not only did they make partnerships, but they entered into these pagan uh, spirituality, they entered into the pagan spirituality and literal worship of the gods of other nations as they became subject to them. And so idolatry was backed up and was fed really by Israel's desire to be provided for outside of what God promised to provide for them. And just what happened, just like what happened in ancient Israel, one of the telltale signs of idolatry is trusting in the things of this world to give us the things that God said that he would already provide for us. So things like provision and life and security and identity and contentment, all these things and more are what God wants to give us but through relationship with him. Like Israel, we're often in this place where we're faced with the position of, of asking what we ultimately trust in to give us the things that we need in this world and we need as human beings. And what makes, I think, I think in many times, what makes the idolatry of money and power and comfort and security so difficult to discern is that God does use some of those things. He uses money, obviously, to provide for us. So the question comes down to, how do I know the difference between using money as a provision from God versus relying on money and influence to provide as an idol. It's the difference between God providing for me or money providing for me. Do you see the distinction there? And so the question is, what does that look like in our own hearts? Well, by what is said, I think, in chapter 18, idolatry is seen in the heart again and in the fruit. In the heart of it, it's seen in verse 7. The spirit of Babylon says she glorified herself. Right? The heart that makes money or power or security or comfort an idol glorifies themselves as the one who has provided it. Not only do we place other things in place of God, but we often place ourselves in place of God as the ones who have actually provided what we have rather than realizing and understanding that everything that we have comes from God. And so the heart that sees wealth as something that they have produced for themselves has little need to, has little felt need really to uh, appreciate or to recognize God's provision. I think that's something that we're often in danger of. I mean, for many of us, we probably have the means, the resources, to be able to provide every need that we have on our own without actually relying on God for day-to-day -day provision at all, except in maybe in extreme circumstances. And what that begins to create in us, if we're not careful, is a reliance on the resources and the money that we have and a reliance on my ability to provide those things for myself and my family rather than on God's ability to provide for those things. And it's a subtle thing, but it becomes something that bears idolatrous fruit at times. It becomes an opportunity for idolatry to take root in our hearts. And I think when it comes down to it, idolatry is worshiping something other than God by giving it the glory and devotion that belongs to God 
to something else or to that thing. Things that are good then are elevated into ultimate things. They're not things that we're given by God to enjoy, but they become ultimate things for us and drive our hearts and our minds. I think, it, I think at times idolatry is rooted so deeply in the heart and we don't see it on the surface, but it often comes to the surface when that idol is threatened in some way. So we're threatened by losing it, and so in some way it comes to the surface, and then we have to deal with it in that moment because then we try to do everything we can to keep it and make sure that it doesn't get away. Like Israel, we might compromise a little bit here or a little bit there, using deception or power plays or rationalization to allow it to continue, or acting in unethical ways in order to keep the things that we feel like we need. And that may be wealth or power, it may be a profit margin, it may be other things. The diagnostic question, I think, in that case is, do we glorify ourselves with what we consider to be our money, or do we glorify God with what we know is his money? As I just said earlier, we recognize, I think rightly, that everything that we have, and we say this a lot, everything that we have is God's. All the resources we have, even the very life, the relationships I have, the breath that I'm drawing right now, I have because God has given it to me, right? That's the reality of it. But what idolatry does is convince us that it's our money, that it's our resources to do with what we want to do with. And so with my resources, I can satisfy all my wants and desires. But if I see it as God's money that he has given to us, or he's given to me, it's a calling to be a blessing in the world with what he has given me, first and foremost, rather than to just satisfy all of my needs and wants. Now, as this Chapter also shows idolatry is shown in its fruit in terms of its effect in the world. Verse 5 again says that the sins of Babylonian idolatry are heaped as high as the heaven. They become a dwelling place for demons and unclean things and those things that specifically produce death and plagues and famines as a part of their judgment in the earth. In other words, a system that's built on greed and deception and violence breeds injustice and greed and violence. It's it's in and out, right? What What goes in produces a fruit in the way that it comes out. This past week, um, Miroslav Volf tweeted out a reference to Psalm 73 regarding what's going on in Ukraine right now. And he explained it as a description of the instigators of the war in Ukraine. He didn't name anyone in particular by name. But what he said this, but he quoted this piece of Psalm uh, 73. And I'm going to read these words for you. And I want you to listen to how closely these words describe the nature of even Babylonian fruit that we see here In Revelation 18, it says, Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness, which implies greed, right? And their hearts overflow with follies, which implies deception. Now, I want to say this. I think it's easy to, to point the finger at other things that are going on in our world and other people, and surely... Um, the heartache and the suffering that's going on in the war in Ukraine is, an, is evidence of this. But at the same time, when we read words like this and we think about how idolatry affects us, we need to remember that it's God's calling to say, come out of this. And I think along with this question of what it looks like to come out of this, we also have to ask the question of not only coming out of Babylon, but how much Babylon needs to come out of us. How much Babylon needs to be removed from us. This past week, I was reading an article, or, or I, I should say this, this article came across my social media feed called Jesus Wants Your Wallet. And I thought it was timely, I thought it was providential given to what, we were, what I was preparing for for this week. And as you can probably tell from the title, it was about how Christians handle their wealth and money in the world. And this article was written in response to a recent study that was done about how Christians spend their money and their giving patterns and those kinds of things. And the author pointed out, a few different stats that came out of this study. First thing he said is that economists have observed that modern Americans are, some, are, are somewhere around 90 times more wealthy than the average person in human history. So you take all the people who lived in human history in all the countries throughout all the world even now, and, and economists has, have observed that the average American, you and I, are 90 times more wealthy than the average person in human history throughout all countries and all eras in history. That's adjusted even for inflation. Secondly, about 19%, which is one in five, evangelical Christians gave nothing to churches or charities in the previous year financially. 
And you might say, well, you know, it's been hard times, like a couple of years have been really rough. You get that, you understand that. But this also includes a number of those who made six figure, over six figures as an income. Of those, 10% gave absolutely nothing to churches or charities. And then third, I think this is probably one of the most telling ones, that the overall rate of giving for professing American evangelical Christians was 3.2%. And that may sound low, and it is low. As bad as that number is, though, as the author pointed out, and I would say this is true, serving in church ministry now for 20 years and serving in local churches, the reality is that it's actually a small group of people in most churches who give about 10 to 20% of their income that inflates that number. So as bad as 3.2% sounds, the reality for most people is even lower than that. Now look, I, I understand that we're now at a place in, in culture where talking about giving in church has become one of those topics we're not supposed to talk about anymore. It's like you, you don't talk about politics and religion at the Thanksgiving dinner table and you don't talk about giving in church anymore. But here's the thing, and, 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 it isn't, and, and usually it's because you know, it doesn't feel polite, it makes people uncomfortable, and then we got this whole thing with church greed. Look, I'm the first to, uh, to grieve church greed. I'm not going to stand up here and say that churches and church leaders haven't taken advantage of, of giving and don't continue to do that in some ways. But look, this isn't a question about what churches do with your money once you give it, or what ministries or charities do with your money once you give it. This is a question of our hearts and our attachment to wealth and whether or not wealth is an idol or whether we are actually free to give away what God has freely given to us. And I will say this, that this dynamic about not talking about giving and money in the church is a uniquely American thing in a lot of ways in the American church. I've been in churches all over the world, and I would say this, for the most part, churches all over the world, whether it's in Africa, the Middle East, Europe, um, don't have a problem talking about money as much as we do. And I think there's a reason for that. I have a theory, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm gonna tell you what my theory is this morning because uh, I have the microphone, but I'll say this. <laughs> my theory is this, is that when we talk about giving in the church, it hits on the three of the most prominent idols in the American church that we have. It hits on the idol of individualism, me, my money. It hits on the idol of the love of money and greed. I love my money because of what it provides for me, the comfort, the luxury, the pleasure that it's able to provide for me. And then finally, it hits on this idea of what we consider to be freedom, which is actually not freedom as defined by the Bible. It's really independence. In other words, I'm not dependent upon God for anything. And I'm not dependent upon God to tell me how I should spend my money. So it's my money that I'm free to do with whatever I want to do with. And I'll say this, that that attitude, which, is, which prevails our culture, and even prevails in a lot of ways the church as well, it has more in common with the Babylonian idolatry than it does with biblical stewardship and biblical finances. And I know that I've thrown some numbers at you, but this is not about being slaves to numbers. That would be legalistic. I, I think giving 10% or giving a tithe, for example, in Scripture is a good model, but it's not necessarily the one standard for faithful giving in the Bible. Instead, I think the standard of giving comes from 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, where it says that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, we've all heard that before. If you've been in church, right? we love to recite that, especially guys like me. God loves a cheerful giver, right? But what is a cheerful giver? Have you ever thought about that? I think simply put, a cheerful giver is someone who recognizes that giving is a blessing and not a burden. Giving is a blessing and not a burden. And why is it a blessing? Here's a few reasons. Number one, giving reveals our hearts. If I were to ask you the question, who is giving for and who does giving benefit the most, how would you answer that question? I think at first glance we might think, well, giving is for God. God commands us to give, and we're giving out of obedience to what God tells us to do. And the one who benefits from giving the most might be the one who receives that gift. So maybe it's the church, maybe it's a charity, maybe if I'm giving to somebody one-on-one, -on -one, it's that person who's in need, whatever it may be. While all of those things may be true, the ultimate reality is that, spiritually speaking, giving is primarily for the one who gives, because giving is a spiritual exercise. Think about it. We don't give because God needs the money. He owns it all anyway. Giving is for your benefit primarily because it forms your heart spiritually to, to trust God instead of trusting money, to love God instead of loving money, and to serve God instead of serving money. By giving it away, it releases your attachment to that thing. And God tells us to give primarily for that purpose so that we wouldn't be attached to the idolatry of wealth and what we believe that it brings us. You see what I'm saying? 
As Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. Either you will serve the one and hate the other, or you will serve the one and hate the other. Right? And so he's releasing us from that bondage by telling us to give. Secondly, giving, and I will say this, this is especially true about sacrificial giving. In other words, the kind of giving that forces you to not be able to do that because you have to give, because you decided to give in this area, right? If I give this, it forces me to sacrifice on not being able to spend my money on something else that I might want. That pull there, that tension there, that if you give, you've always felt, is, is, is the threat of an idol. Secondly, giving displays God's character. I'll say this, God is a giver. If you look in scripture, you see all over the place that it's in God's character to be a giver, even to be a sacrificial giver. God was the original sacrificial giver. There's a lot of truth to the fact that the more you give, the more you are like God. God gave us life as our creator. God gives us everything that we have as our provider. And God gave us his son, Jesus, as our savior. And we constantly see God as a giver. And if we recognize the fact that everything that we have is, is, is God's, that he's given to us to manage, not to own, right? That word stewardship, I think, is important because it implies management, not ownership. You don't own what you have. God owns it, and you manage it in a way that's glorifying to him, right? That's what we're called to do. The, the single most way you can glorify God is by doing the things that represent God's character in the world. And one of those things is giving because God is a giver. And then third, God unle- uh, giving unleashes God's kingdom. You know, just as the hoarding of money and wealth and the spirit of Babylon idolatry uh, brings the fruit of brokenness like famines and disease and death and all those things that we saw named here in chapter 18, giving, on the other hand, has the, the fruit of bringing God's kingdom impact to earth. We saw, uh, you know, Wes, Wes talked earlier about our giving to Ukraine and giving particular to missionaries who are working over there, literally so that people who are civilians can actually eat and have food day to day. That's an example of being able to bring God's kingdom to earth by giving. It's providing for those who are in need. It's providing, for, uh, it's providing peace and at least some sense of uh, everyday uh, sustenance and need for people who are in a chaotic situation. It's bringing the kingdom of earth to a place where there is chaos and destruction everywhere. In the end, giving is for our good and for God's glory. And I want to close with this because I think this is a more direct direct instruction on how we approach this and how we identify and move forward. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus confronts the church at Laodicea with some really poignant words about the dangers of idolatry. And in particular, he addresses this issue of wealth. Apparently the church at Laodicea was really wealthy. There are a lot of biblical commentators who actually will say, well, the church of Laodicea probably represents the modern American church better than any of the seven churches if we're looking at Revelation. I think I agree with that to some degree. But listen to what Jesus says to them, the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. You may remember this is the church that's lukewarm. Jesus is saying, either become hot or cold or I'll spit you out of my mouth. But then after that he says this in Revelation 3, verse 17, it says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove, and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. I want to remind you that Jesus is writing this to the church at Laodicea, not just like people or earth dwellers or whatever it is that Revelation says about those who are not in the church, right? This is the church, and he's calling them to repent and using some very direct words in this. But much like what Revelation 18 shows us, although the idolatry of Babylon may bring us material wealth in the world for a moment, Jesus tells the church at Laodicea that idolatry leaves us spiritually poor, blind, and naked. Yeah, you can clothe yourself with fine linens and jewelry and all those kinds of things, but in the end, spiritually speaking, if that is what you worship and put your confidence in, then in the end, what you don't see is that you're spiritually blind, poor, and naked. And Jesus tells us instead to come to him for true wealth, which he defines as wisdom and counsel. He says, come to me and I will counsel you and give you wisdom and insight into your own heart. That is true wealth. True wealth is being able to see into your own heart what Jesus is working to give you victory over and to remove from that place. 
that he will open our eyes to the idolatry we have in our hearts. And he does this through discipline and repentance that he says comes from his love. He says, I love you, so I discipline you. I love you so that I can show you what is going on so that then you can repent and turn away from those things because those things hold you in bondage and they are not good for you. No matter how alluring, no matter how intoxicating they may feel or seem, in the end, they are not good for you. They will destroy you. Come out of Babylon, my people. Satan, who is the enemy of our soul, will try anything he can to deceive you in this process, often using the idols of this world. He'll try to scare you with the fears of this world. He'll try to numb you with the pleasures of this world. He'll try to distract you with the busyness of this world. He'll try to confuse you with the lies of this world. He will try to seduce you with the temptations of this world. And he will try to blind you with the pride and self-centeredness of this world. The work that God does in us is that he fights for us by his spirit. And as much as, of course, we understand that there are wars in our world and there's conflict all around us and chaos all around us, if we look in scripture overwhelmingly, what we're, what we're shown is that the real war is what is happening inside each one of our hearts. And the war that's being fought on our behalf by God's spirit is this reality, is that it's not just it's not just that he fights the war on our behalf, but he's fighting to apply the victory of Jesus to our hearts. That's what the Spirit does in our lives when it comes to, these, to this battle, to this war. And this is all that Jesus came to free you of, to save you from. This is about his victory. It's all that he promised to give you for eternity. Freedom, salvation, reconciliation to him. So you don't have to be bound up. You don't have to be a slave to the idols of this world or the idols of your heart. In the end, God knows that what you worship is what you serve. And as appealing as Babylon looks, she is really a dangerous, ugly beast. And in all that Babylon promises to give, her promises are full of lies. And as powerful and as young as Babylon often seems to be, she is here one moment and she is gone in judgment the next moment. And so God calls us instead to come out of Babylon and to allow him to do the work of getting Babylon out of us by receiving his grace and his power as the applied victory of Jesus in our hearts. It's a victory over Babylon out there and it's a victory over Babylon in here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have secured the victory for us. We pray that you would train our eyes and our hearts um, to see everything that we experience in this world through that lens. Because it can be so easy to forget that reality is actually what we see in the pages of this book, your word to us. It can be so easy to lose sight of that reality, and when that happens, Lord, so many things fall out of place. Um, I pray that you would expose in our hearts, just as you promised to do, Lord Jesus, that you would give us wisdom into seeing and revealing our hearts. And Lord, I'll admit that when I say we, this is not just a commentary of the royal we. This is we as in a personal we. I, I am in the midst of that as well. I know that I'm just as prone as anybody in this room to look at my investment portfolio on a Monday afternoon and see that it's gone down 15% and allow it to just wreck my day and to cause me to panic and to change my mood. And Lord, that is evidence of my heart being attached to something that it does not need to be attached to. And whatever that looks like for each one of us, Lord, I pray freedom. I pray the freedom and victory of Jesus into our hearts. Lord Jesus, you came to set us free from those things. I pray that we'd be able to release it by faith to you and allow you to deal with it. Not because you want to shame us, but because, as you say right here in Revelation 3, you love us, and so you call us to discipline and repentance. It's life-giving in the end. And Lord, we pray that for each of us, that we would have the faith and the boldness to walk out repentance and to turn to you and to ask you, Lord, for your grace and mercy and power in our lives, that the victory of Jesus would be made evident in the way that we live 
and in our hearts and our minds. We pray these things in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Lord, your ways are better than mine. What a great thing to remember as we, as we move out into our week. Uh, I want to remind you that if you would like to give to our efforts in Ukraine to support uh, the missionaries through crew over there, um, we need you to mark um, on your giving over the next two weeks. We're, we're, we're giving everything that's marked into our Shepherd's Fund to that fund in particular. And so what that means is if you're giving online, I want to make sure that you, uh, you mention or you give towards the Shepherd's Fund. If you're doing it on the app, same thing as well. If you're writing a check, write Shepherd's Fund in the memo line. Or if you're giving here this morning, make sure that you write Shepherd's Fund somewhere on there, on the envelope or whatever it may be, so that we know where that needs to go to. So designate it for that in particular, okay? Um, you know, this, this coming week, we, uh, we want to encourage you to continue in prayer for all that's going on in our world, especially, as we've said, for those who are suffering in Ukraine. But we know also that there are things that are going on in our individual lives every day, whether it's sickness or, or whatever you're dealing with relationally, or maybe it's an issue at work, whatever it may be. So we encourage you to lean on us, to help lean on your church community, to help bear those burdens in prayer with you. That's one of the blessings we have as a church, to be able to pray for one another. When we don't know what else to do for one another, at least we can pray. I say, at least we can pray. We, should, we can pray, right? We can pray, and there, and there is power in that, not because prayer itself, but because of the God that we pray to, who hears our prayers and who moves on our behalf and for his glory for his, and for our good. And so with that in mind, Deborah Berry is our prayer partner for today. If you'd like someone to pray with, she'd be happy to pray with you as we leave. We also have prayer cards that are located, prayer request cards that are located on the table as you leave here this morning. If you fill one of those out and drop it in the offering stand, we'll make sure that it gets to our prayer teams this week. And we'll be praying for those things with you, bearing those burdens with you in prayer this week. All right? Love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.